is Our American Stories, and this next story comes from Lily Danzinger. And this piece was originally written in Psychology Today for her mother and father. I was eight the first time my father and I spoke about heroin. He was working on a sculpture, sitting cross-legged on the floor with his curly hair hanging down over his face. I stood at his bookshelf, perusing the thick art volumes. Tucked between the pages of one, I found a piece of tinfoil folded into a square and marked with small circular burns. I'd never seen one like it, but I had a hunch this peculiar object had something to do with his drug habit. I asked, Papa, what's this? He frowned in the same way he would when I declined to try out a new drawing technique, but I knew I wasn't the source of his disappointment this time. Some ten seconds ticked by before he finally answered, That's from doing drugs. But it's from a long time ago. It must have gotten lost in that book. There was another pause, and guilt must have overcome him, because he then confessed that the tinfoil square wasn't actually from that long ago, though he assured me that he had stopped using drugs again and was doing better this time. Smelling of tobacco and plaster, he planted a kiss on the top of my head and went back to chiseling a block of wood. I knew from a young age that my parents were heroin addicts. It doesn't take the world's smartest kid to figure out the purpose of a methadone clinic, or to decipher loud, tearful arguments about how it's time to stop, muffled by only a thin wall when you're supposed to be asleep. Growing up where and when I did, in New York's East Village and San Francisco's Mission District in the early 90s, their predicament was common. Plenty of people were slowly caving in on themselves, their skin growing sallow and their eyes becoming vacant as they were eaten alive from within by drugs. But despite knowing that my parents struggled with addiction, I had only a patchy understanding of what that meant. Either for them or for the hollow-eyed strangers on the street and in the clinic waiting room. I'd picked up enough from movies and foreboding commercials to know that drugs were bad for you, but I understood it in the same abstract way I knew broccoli was good for you. I couldn't really differentiate between my parents' drug problem and all their other grown-up problems, like making the rent and keeping the house clean. In the years after the tinfoil incident, after my parents split up and my mother successfully kicked her heroin habit, my father and I had an ongoing coded dialogue about his efforts to do the same. He would tell me that he was healthy, which was his way of saying that he was clean. He couldn't bring himself to be completely frank about his struggle, but he knew that I worried about it and he wanted to reassure me. The fact that he told me how he was doing, no matter how euphemistically, made me trust him. It made me feel even more invested as I rooted for him from the sidelines of this invisible battle. I believed in him so intensely that I was probably the only person who didn't immediately assume drugs were involved when he died. I was 12 and living in upstate New York with my mother. He had gone to live in a cabin in the Northern California Redwoods to be in nature and away from drugs. He died in his sleep. Even though I was across the country when it happened, I felt certain that my father was clean because of the postcards he'd sent me, always mentioning how well he was doing and how he couldn't wait for me to visit so we could camp out under the ancient majestic trees. The autopsy report eventually confirmed that there was no heroin in my father's blood when he died. The coroner couldn't determine a cause of death, which left many open questions, but I had the answer to the one question that mattered to me. 
As far as I knew, the only way heroin could become fatal was through an overdose, and I took the absence of the drug in his system to mean that his death was unrelated to his many years of drug abuse. I felt vindicated. I spent the next decade mourning my father, telling everyone what a great artist he'd been and how much he'd taught me about life, literature, and language. That trendy was a bad word, for instance, and overusing like makes a person sound ignorant. My father was the beloved lost, blameless as a saint. While I sprayed the anger I felt over his loss everywhere else, blasting it like buckshot from a shotgun at my mother, teachers and classmates, and later at truant officers and cops. I was furious at the world for taking him from me. When I hit my 20s, I realized that I didn't actually know that much about my father beyond my rosy memories, so I started reaching out to his old friends. The hazy view of heroin I'd had as a child became sharper and more detailed. I learned that he'd been using it with far more regularity and for a longer period of time than I'd ever known. I eventually came to face the obvious. The damage done by poisoning yourself for almost two decades doesn't instantly reverse the moment you stop. A 43-year-old man's organs don't just shut down inexplicably. There may not have been heroin in his system when he died, but that didn't mean heroin wasn't the cause of his death. I started to see his death not as some freak occurrence, but as something he let happen. And I was furious. Letting myself rage at him, at the memory of him, was like releasing a breath I'd held for almost 20 years. As a child, I'd thought of addiction as a big bad demon my parents were fighting to escape so that we could all live happily ever after. Now, I had to wonder how they let themselves get into that position in the first place. How could they have looked at the peaceful face of their sleeping child in one room, then closed the door and gotten high in another? My father was a good parent in many ways. He read me Grimm's fairy tales and Greek myths, cherished my every piece of art, and encouraged me to voice my thoughts loudly and clearly. But all the while, he failed his number one duty to me to do everything he could to make sure that he'd stay in my life. The central requirement of being a parent is to be present. All the rest is a matter of style and degree. You can't be a good parent or even a bad parent if you're not there at all. He hadn't really died by accident, I came to realize. He'd committed a suicide by neglect, like a lie of omission. In a way, feeling my anger at him has lessened its power over me. The story we often hear about the loved ones of addicts, a pat tale of anger resolving into forgiveness, doesn't acknowledge the complexity of feelings layered upon each other, all of them shifting continually with time. I don't know if or when I'll ever fully forgive my father, but that's okay. Anger hasn't diminished my love for him or my appreciation of everything that was wonderful about him. It's just made him feel more real. It's let me see him with bracing clarity. Not only as the adored father I lost too soon, but as a flawed human being who I can now mourn more fully and honestly. And what a beautiful and thoughtful piece. Thank you, Lily, for what you wrote, and thank you for sharing it with us. Lily Danziger's story, her mother and father's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and our next story is brought to us by a listener, Jim Johnson, who is a longtime pastor who lives in Rogers, Minnesota, and listens out of WCCO 830 in Minneapolis. Pastor Jim wowed our listeners back in December with his story, Everett's Last Christmas Carol. We asked if he had another story to share with our listeners, and here he is again. Here's Pastor Jim. Somewhere around row 22, section 3 in the left field bleachers in Bloomington, Minnesota, at the now-leveled Metropolitan Stadium, the Old Met as we called it, where the Twins used to play between 1961 and 1981, there it was that I learned a harsh, cruel lesson about life. I learned a lot of lessons about life, but that day culminated them all together. It's been 41 years since then, August of 1979. Back then, I was involved in professional organized baseball. I even made it to the major leagues. It was big money for me, surrounded by fans, people trying to get my attention. The Twins' owner signed my checks, and it was more cash than I could fathom. But it was, however, not as a left fielder that I made my name for the Minnesota Twins. I did play baseball, but not for the Twins. I was only a high school player for the Kennedy Eagles. Now, my place in the majors was as a seller of hot dogs at the game. I started with soda and popcorn, then worked my way up to frosty malts and snow cones. But my highest levels were reached as a hot dog vendor. That was big time for me. Selling Schweigert Tender Bite Hot Dogs those sumptuous tubes I sold for a dollar. Served up by a kid who would one day become Sports Illustrated writer Steve Russian. He was then just a 14-year-old kid who forked boiled wieners and put them on buns for me, stuffed them in a wax paper package. And once in a while, the gifted SI journalist-to-be would fling one hot dog to me, seeing how hungry and sweaty I was. Every time I scrambled down the steps to... Russian's post in the commissary in center field behind the fence next to the scoreboard, Steve Russian would fling a hot dog to keep me going. I will never forget him for that gift. Baseball is good because of people like Steve Russian and because it's slow and dramatic and there's time to learn how to live life well. Baseball is played in a crowd in an artificially made city park with people sitting on top of each other, crowding into you, elbows and kneecaps a little too tight. You see, baseball in a stadium with 20,000 or 30,000 or 45,000 people puts you in a different world. The smells, the sounds, the echoing crack of a Louisville slugger, the force of a Bob Casey announcer saying, Now batting for the Twins, number 29, the second baseman, Rod Carew. Or how he used to say in that buzzsaw voice, No smoking in the Metrodome! No smoking! And there you would see Kent Herbeck at first base while Casey crooned that anti-nicotine song. There was my Kennedy high school mate, our varsity eagle first baseman pitcher, pretending to smoke while Mr. Casey yelled, No smoking! And Herbeck would wave his arm saying, No, no, you can't do that. And we loved it. That's what happens when you put 20-somethings in a stadium tucked inside a place with 2,500 fans or 25,000 fans and the noises and hot dogs and vendors 
the players all blending together with the PA man, a symphony of sports and people and life. Something better happens when you give a 17-year-old a cooler of hot dogs and you point to the crowd and say, go sell these. You learn about the world selling hot dogs at a ball game. So now when I'm living with the rest of you during this global pandemic, I pine for the crowds and those days at the old Met. I think about August 1st, 1979, when I learned about crowds and humility and revenge and hot dogs. The old Met was a hodgepodge patchwork of a sports venue, almost modular. The infield was made of black soil like it was from the Red River Valley of the North. It was a small stadium that could hold up to 45,000 people, even more for the Vikings games, but it was, well, a little backward. But we loved it because it was ours. It was not New York, it was not L.A., it was not Chicago, it was not Wrigley, it was not St. Louis. Just old Met Stadium built in Bloomington, Minnesota on an onion field next to the Minnesota River. Now it's the Mall of America, but then it was just a training ground for life. That day I muttered, hot dogs. I was mad. Hot dogs. It was a hot day, so I would sell about 36, maybe 72 hot dogs. That was it. While my friends during that hot knothole afternoon game would be making 20% commission on snow cones or malt cups by the hundred. I asked our commissary manager, Mr. Dillon, the cigar-smoking vendor boss, if maybe, just maybe, just for a Wednesday day game with 83-degree heat, for a Twins game against the Oakland A's, if... I could sell 75-cent malt cups or snow cones instead of hot, hot, hot dogs. Dylan, to my incredulity, said, No, sell hot dogs. What, I said? Come on. I'm a hot dog vendor. I'm an upper-class sales rep. It was not quite beer vendor level, but way above the soda hawkers and the lads selling popcorn. Hot dog vendors had status. We could cry out with our throats wide open. The veteran first-team Major League Schweigert vendors. Hot dogs! Get your hot dogs here! It was the rookies who had no choices. Peanuts, yes, they had clout, but hot dog vendors were supposed to get their way, so I asked Dylan if I could sell snow cones. But he said, no, we're not going to do that. On a knothole Wednesday at 3 p.m., With only 5,711 fans in the park that day, selling for a team that would draw the fewest fans of any team in the American League that year, an average of 9,900 fans per game. Those poorly middling twins were letting go of all their stars because Mr. Griffith was too tight to pay them, and the fans stayed away in droves. We, in turn, were destined to watch... Players like Rick Sofield and Willie Norwood instead of Larry Heisel and Greg Nettles and Lyman Bostock and Rod Carew. The crowds were so thin, so we figured if we showed up on a sweltering 83 day to sell hot dogs, we could at least sell something cold. But Dylan said, no chance. And that ticked me off. So my co-working underlings, vendors 1 through 299, were selling cold items and making big fat coin. And I would be selling steaming hot dogs 
to little children who did not want to eat something hot and maybe make $14 for the day. That was wrong. Hot dogs, I growled. To top it off, Section 3 was filled with little children, tiny humans with small coins and no desire to eat hot Schweigert tender bites. They crowded the aisles in such a way that I couldn't get to my spot. At the old Met, the high school vendors all staked their claim. This guy in the third base seats, that guy in the second deck behind home, but I and my gentle giant friend Gunner, that six-foot-four first-base backup to Kent Herbeck at Kennedy High School, Gunner and I would claim the first deck of left field. We owned it. It was ours. It was our unquestioned capitalistic domain. But those knothole kids got in for free with an adult who paid $3 for a ticket. And any old guy who paid that little for a ticket was not going to spend a dollar for the junior knothole kids he crowded into his Ford Galaxy for a free knothole game on an 83-degree day in Minnesota. So that was my mindset going into row 32 that August 1st day. During the middle of the first inning, then and there, I decided I was going to have my way. I decided to break vendor's code rules. Yes, I was mad so I could do it. Rule number one for vendors was always, never walk on the bleacher seat backs. And you're listening to Jim Johnson, and he's a listener in Minnesota who listens at a WCCO 830 in Minneapolis. This labor strike of sorts, this labor protest of sorts, as a young man, we'll learn more about it after these messages. And by the way, if you have stories like this about your youth, about your first job, about your first rebellion with a boss or a parent. My goodness, life is riddled with these conflicts. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. Let's pick up where he last left off. Rule number one for vendors was always, never walk on the bleacher seat backs. Unthinkable. You have to walk down the aisle. But no, I said, like Herbie Brooks, the passionate Minnesota-born St. Paul side coach of the Gophers and Team USA Hockey. Not today, not tonight. I was sick and tired of kids and crowds and sick and tired of hearing how people had to follow the rules. So I was cruising down those bleacher back steps. Row 22, row 21, and I was carrying my 36 hot dogs in a candy apple plastic tub, my vendor number 311 button flapping on my hat, my crisp linen vendor shirt, my coin apron clanking and clinking down the aisle with me, and I was feeling good. I was feeling right. All the way down row 25, 24, 23, I was going great, my athletic poise carrying the day, not a worry. But then came row 22, and there my ankle turned on the top of that bleacher. My Nike high top twisted, and my left knee wrenched itself between seats 14 and 15, my chest heaved into row 21, and my hot dog cooler popped and bounced onto rows 19 and 20. My wax paper baggies spilled out Schweigert tender bites, and they slinkied and wobbled between seats 12 and 13 and 15. Coins from my apron sprinkled and chinkled and rolled, and little knothole children, those thieves, pounced on my quarters, four dollars worth of them, and liberated them from my care. One wiener splunched underneath my foot 
and a teenage kid, some gearhead with orange hair, pointed and stared and said, Ha! Look at that! Look at that kid! His friends laughed hard and they pointed at me with their fingers at my vulnerable position and laughed like mockers and scoffers. Some hot dogs escaped while I picked up my coins, my red face with anger looking back at them and watching those pre-adolescent pirates scooping up my change and it was all gone. It was there I realized, yes, you have to pay for your misdeeds. Some people get away for their disorder, but not me. It was there that I realized there is no true justice in this world, in this dark, dark planet. Unlike what I learned in elementary school in Bloomington, Minnesota, in the lower class suburbs, or in Sunday school at the Lutheran Church, I learned that we are not all family. We are not all brothers and sisters, are we? We are not like Neil Diamond sang, hands touching hands, reaching out, touching me, touching you. That's not true, is it, sweet Caroline? No, my friends, we are cheaters and thieves and out to get the goods. And no, we are not going to all wear masks and stay home and ride the coronavirus out. We are going to take what is ours and point and laugh at the man with the hot dogs stumbling over row 22 and 21 at the Met Stadium. You know, such cold, hard truths you can only learn personally. And I learned them at the old Met Stadium. Now I'm a Lutheran pastor, the father of nine children, the grandfather of seven. I've pastored souls in northern Minnesota, and I have cared for parishioners in Southern California, too. Now I'm a coach and advisor to 20 pastors of new churches all across America, and I'm a friend and father to a seven adult children and two teenagers. And what I really want to tell them is summarized in five words. Guard your hot dogs, bub. A Scandinavian-American Anglo guy can have heroes. And they were people of all races and all creeds, every class. We respected Muhammad Ali from Kentucky, but he really was from the whole world. We wished we were Tony Oliva the Cuban and Ken Landrew, the Angelino from L.A. We adored Kirby Puckett and we loved Ozzie Smith from Watts and Rod Carew was from New York, but they were all ours. They were Minnesota twins. They were baseball players and they belonged to us. We imitated them. We swung like them. And that's good because it's baseball in a crowd in an artificially made city park with people sitting on top of each other. During the COVID season, you think about times like that, and you wish we could learn to get along better. We could learn to get along and follow the rules and put on a mask or watch from home and don't sing in front of a big crowd of people and spread your germs for Pete's sake. Don't smoke, not in the Metrodome or anywhere else. But now I'm living with the rest of you during this global pandemic, and I pine for those simpler days in the crowd's and everything I learned from what I'm missing today. I remember one day selling hot dogs on the other side of the stadium when the Yankees were playing the Twins in a night game at the Old Met. I wandered away from left field and was selling on the second deck side, infield, by first base. Everybody stopped selling and the fans stood up when Yankee slugger Reggie Jackson stepped into the box. When the Yankees came to the Met, it was always a sellout, or nearly so. 
The usually empty seats would fill with over 40,000 fans. They came to see mostly Reggie Jackson or to jeer him. Doug Corbett was the reliever. 20,000 voices yelled, hoping Doug Corbett would strike Reggie Jackson out. Jackson was controversial and lovable and hateable all at once because he enjoyed himself and loved to hit that little round ball as far and hard as he could. Like Muhammad Ali, he was the straw that stirred the drink, or like I would tell my little grandchildren, the popsicle stick that stirs the hot chocolate. Once Jackson said, I don't come to New York to become a star. I brought my star with me. We loved him for saying that, and we knew it was true. He also famously said, after Jackie Robinson, referring to the first black player to break into the major leagues, after Jackie Robinson, the most important black player in baseball is Reggie Jackson. And he added, I really mean that. But my favorite quote of all time from Mr. October is how he described dealing with defeat. I was reminded, Jackson said, when I lose or strike out, a billion people in China don't care. I think that's about the way it is. That day at the old Met, I put down my hot dog cooler and just watched Jackson with two men on base and the Yankees down by two, facing Corbett and the 40,000 Minnesotans in the eighth inning. He turned and twisted on the first pitch, missing wildly, and we all laughed as the umpire called strike one. He swung with as much gusto as that red-headed bozo who laughed at me when I tripped on row 22. Yes, we yelled. Strike him out. Get him. The second pitch was a curveball, and Jackson flailed again, spinning on his heels, falling on his ripe hip, sprawling into the dirt. Oh, how we jeered. Victory was so sweet, we thought. Two strikes on Reggie Jackson. And then came three wasted pitches, and Jackson watched them all and waited for the 3-2 pitch. And you're listening to Jim Johnson, and he's a listener out of WCCO 830 in Minneapolis. He's also a pastor, as he mentioned. And by the way, to hear his story that he lasted with us, Everett's Last Christmas Carol, go to OurAmericanStories.com and in the search bar, just put in his name. But my goodness, I love that term, pre-adolescent pirates. As you could see those kids just scurrying around, stealing every last quarter, nickel, and dime. Yes, you do pay for your misdeeds, he learned. When we come back, more of this terrific storyteller. And my goodness, we have so many across our country, so many of you, the listeners, are actually our very best storytellers, right up there with the best authors and the most famous storytellers in this great country. Let's pick up where we last left off. When it came... Jackson spun, and the bat cracked, and the ball sailed into the ether. It became as small in the sky as a tiny aspirin. It soared into the right field bleachers, and strangely, we all cheered for him, even the Twins fans. To watch a man love adversity, stand up there and swing at all his enemies, devil may care. He sends a baseball into obscurity, and he trots around the bases with a half-smile and a victor's jog. Oh, how we loved him. Jackson once said he prays before a homer, and he tells the Lord, he says, Please, God, let me hit one. I'll tell everyone you did it. That suits me just about fine. 
Back in lower middle class Bloomington, I learned at the Met that there is no utopia. Nothing comes for free. There was no room for everybody to worry about not getting treated right. People on the bottom can rise up and learn. There's room for the tall and the proud to fall, and there's room for the lower bottom feeders to rise up. Those are the low-down truths. If they say to sell hot dogs, sell hot dogs and smile. If you spill some mustard, rub it on your pants and wash your hands and keep going. My favorite vendor was an aging black man named Paps. He sold beer, which I did not do or drink to this day, but I admired how Paps sold it. He was at least 75 years old, and he smoked a pipe while he sold. He weighed about 250 pounds, and he sweat and smiled and carried his 40-pound boxes of Schlitz or Grain Belt or Paps Blue Ribbon. And when he sold, he did not yell. He confidently smiled, a half-smile, like Reggie Jackson, and often sat down with the fans, took a break. He wore this rainbow-colored umbrella-type hat, and he talked and he spoke really soft, saying, Hey, cold beer, he said. So refreshing. Paps was living life and enjoying it, and everybody loved him. He was a laid-back man of confidence and love, and oh, how I wish I had those gifts. Fans loved to buy from Paps. Also at the Met, there was a scorebook vendor named Donnie. He had Down syndrome, as I recall. His glasses were usually crooked, and his shirt usually rode up too high up his back. His pants were loose, so you saw the top of his sweaty behind above the band of his underwear. We didn't look too close over there, but I learned to look really close at his face. Donnie was into it, and he loved his job. Twin scorecard here, get your scorecard! He drooled a little, but that was okay. We learned to accept it. There is dignity in work, and showing up to sell programs was Donnie's work. Hi, Donnie, I learned to say to him. I learned to treat him with honor. I learned everybody counts. I learned God loves them all, and he loves you too. I also learned as a vendor about competition. One day during a Vikings game, Tom Vandervoort, vendor number 322, got too close to Doug Janzig, vendor 346. At halftime, we learned to order a double or a triple load of 72 hot dogs or 108, cramming them into our cooler. And then we would stand at the back of the line where the fans waited at the concession stand, maybe eight or nine people deep. We opened up the cooler, let the smell just waft out. And then we looked at the people waiting in the back, and we would coo to them, hot dogs here, get your hot dogs. And on a cold day, you could sell about 90 hot dogs in about five minutes. But you had to stake your claim and take your spot at the back of that concession stand. On one fateful Saturday night, vendor 322 placed his cooler adjacent to Janzig, vendor 346. A turf war ensued. Hey, get out of my spot, said Doug. Forget it, said Tom. Move out of here, said Doug. No, you move, said Tom. Hard words grew into curses, and curses became threats, and then came the ultimate. The yellow mustard bottle was pointed. Get out of here, squirt, squirt. Tom responded, what are you doing? Squirt, squirt, squirt. Before it was over, all 
200 dogs were unsold and two vendors were covered with mustard. It was like a moment of eminent domain against free markets, competition against first come, first served, and in the end, two vendors battled it out and both lost. Two competitors that day were done selling. You know, in this world, at the old Met and in this life, you gotta learn to get along. Isn't that part of what we're learning today? During this crisis, we have the mask people and the non-maskers, the closer downs against the let it be and live your lifers. It's us against them. It's the haves versus the have-nots. It's the rioters against law and order. It's sometimes deadly, and it's sometimes just fine. But somehow, some way, we have to learn to get along. Like Reggie Jackson prayed it, please God, let me hit this one out. Let's get through this with love and patience and confidence and joy. We'll do our best and learn not to fight. We'll try to get along. We'll sell our hot dogs. We'll learn to love the poor man selling scorecards. And we'll try to keep the mustard bottles to ourselves. During this current COVID crisis, this great lockdown, the sports shutdown, I listened to WCCO, the good neighbor to the great Northwest. And I listen to the old games. I hear Corey Provis and Dan Gladden and I smile. Or I tune in and hear Tim Gordon or Herb Carneal from days before. And I wish, man, I wish I was selling hot dogs again. They're starting up the baseball season again, but what's baseball without the crowds? Well, it's still baseball, I suppose. My mom would have been watching it. She was a devoted fan. But Twins games without hot dog sales? Yeah, I think we can do it, but I still smell it good and real when I think about it and wish for better days. When the new season starts, I will watch it. It's baseball, and it makes me feel good. It makes me remember Donnie the vendor and Steve Russian flipping me a hot dog from behind a commissary counter, and it reminds me of Reggie Jackson. It reminds me of Kirby Puckett and those great rare athletes, black and white, Latino or Californians, unusual people who can show up for work every day, who learn to slap a curveball to the opposite field and sling an inside cutter down the left field line or stroke a high fastball up the middle or drive a towering fly ball way back, way back over the left field fence. They do things so few athletes can do. And I'll love them and admire them and I'll watch them hit it hard, driving it like Kirby Puckett who always said, see the ball, hit the ball, or like Nelson Cruz, gripping and ripping those Bomba homers, all wrists, all out, as the Twins did last year. 307 home runs in one year, one more than the Yankees. How good did that feel? It felt like justice to me. So what did I learn on August 1st, 1979? And what happened to those hot dogs? Well, let's be real, and let's be honest. That fall over row 22 to 19 was a beautiful day for learning humility, and I did learn. You can't walk over the bleacher backs. And you don't have to live your life worrying about selling snow cones or hot dogs. Just do what you're supposed to do. Life is what you make it, and you don't have to whine. But what's the end of the story? Well, I'll tell you if you don't tell anybody else. I did pick up every one of those hot dogs. I picked up myself and gathered my pride. I walked out of left field 
and strode over to center field three sections away, and yes, I sold every last one of those hot dogs. And I felt good about it, too. Is it justice? No. But at the time, on that 83-degree night, it seemed like the right thing to do to make the best of it. And that's what I'm encouraging you to do. Let's all do it as Americans. Let's face the crisis in the face and make the best of it without complaining. And don't squirt anybody with a mustard bottle, okay? And that was Jim Johnson. And again, he's a longtime pastor who lives in Rogers, Minnesota and listens to us at Our American Stories on WCCO 830 in Minneapolis. And that's one of the great heritage stations in this country. And we're so thankful that WCCO and all of our affiliates carry us so that you can listen. And by the way, if you want to help support what we do, we are a nonprofit and we are going to be relying on our listeners to help us keep telling the stories we tell. So if you can, go to Our American Stories and just make a small contribution, $5 a month or $10 once in uh, every six months, whatever you have, whatever you can spare. We love bringing you these positive stories about American life. And now more than ever, we need to hear them. And my goodness, what storytelling here? We met Paps, we met Donnie, we met an ecosystem, and we all work with people who are different than us. And you can crow and complain, and we know those people who do that all day long, or you can get on with it and make the best of everything and see that all of us can work together to do some pretty interesting things in our lives. And what did he learn most of all? That there's dignity in work, and there is. And lessons are learned every day by work of every kind. Jim Johnson's story, his baseball story, his love story with his sport and his town here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell all kinds of stories here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Today, we have a story from our own little piece of the earth, and we're broadcasting about an hour south of Memphis in beautiful Oxford, Mississippi, small town America. This one comes from the Meisenheimers. Faith brings us their story. Ah, oh, hi guys, I'm Miller Miles Hammer. I'm nine years old and I'm a third grader Adele Davidson and I have cystic fibrosis. Today, I will be interviewed by, by Faith. That is Miller Meisenheimer. As he told us, he is a third grader at Della Davidson Elementary School. He also told us that he has cystic fibrosis. 
Before the 1980s, people diagnosed with cystic fibrosis would rarely make it into their 20s. In less developed countries, the odds of living past the age of 15 is extremely low. Not only has cystic fibrosis taken its victims early in life, it gives them a very poor quality of life with numerous complications. In decades past, cystic fibrosis has been nothing short of a death sentence. Leading cause of death for those with cystic fibrosis is respiratory failure and chronic progressive pulmonary disease. Miller's entire family was able to come into our studio to talk about their experience after their children were diagnosed with this terrifying disease, cystic fibrosis. Tyler and Lindsay have three boys, nine-year-old Miller, who we just heard, six-year-old Aaron, and four-year-old Bennett. Here's Tyler Meisenheimer. So today we just want to share a little bit about our story and our journey um, as our family takes on cystic fibrosis every day. Lindsay, you want to share a little bit about uh, CF and what that means for our family? So um, we, Miller was uh, our first, our old, he's our oldest, he's our first child. We um, found out when he was about five weeks old that he has cystic fibrosis. We really didn't know much about the disease and we didn't know, um, you know, how it happened, what that, what that meant for his life. So we went in, we saw it to Le Bonner Children's Hospital in Memphis. We saw a team of specialists, the main one being pulmonologist. We see nutritionist and we see respiratory therapist. So we, we see quite a few people every time we go. So they told us a little bit about cystic fibrosis. But basically, both Tyler and I have a um, defective gene that we passed on. Miller and also uh, his brother, his youngest brother, Bennett. So they are both affected with cystic fibrosis. And uh, Aaron, our middle child, is not even a carrier. So genetics are a funny thing. So cystic fibrosis, uh, like I said, it's caused by a defective gene. Now there are over 1,500 different uh, genes, uh, deformed or defective genes. Our boys have the most common, which is del- double delta F five oh eight. So they have two copies of the of the five oh eight del. With theirs, the there is a protein that does not fold properly. It doesn't get up to the cell level, and there are not gates to release this protein. What that in effect does is it causes a salt to water imbalance in the cells. So that makes their mucus thick and sticky. So that affects every part of their body. The, you know, the main thing, the, what, what we do, our therapies and every day, that is to try to help clear their lungs, which of course has the most, it's most affected by the mucus, but there's also, you know, liver, pancreas, kidney, everything is affected. Um, so they actually, because when they were born, we found out right away that they're pancreatic insufficient because of that thick mucus that has clogged the pancreas that doesn't work properly. So they take pancreatic enzymes whenever they eat anything. Lindsay's a lot more scientific than I am. Um, CF is a genetic progressive lung disease and it's life-threatening. And so what she was kind of describing what actually is taking place inside the body of a patient with CF, but we also have daily treatments and daily care in order to keep them healthy and well uh, throughout their lives. So there's a lot that we do every day just to kind of keep them as healthy as we possibly can.
Miller had no signs or symptoms at first. We didn't know anything was wrong until about two weeks after he was born. We got the results from his um, n- his newborn screen. So what that tells us is, or what, what it told us, is he has an elevated IRT level. And that What that measures is how in distress his pancreas is, because going back to pancreatic insufficient. So he was, he was, again, born that way. We went back into his pediatrician. We had the heel prick test done again. I call about the results, and we're told it's fine. It's totally normal. We, we were so excited. We went out to celebrate. We went out to eat, and we actually get a call a few days later saying, oh, never mind, that was uh, somebody else's. So we're actually going to need you to come back in and do another heel prick test. So we go back in, and it is still elevated at that point. So we go to Le Bonner and get the, it's what's called a sweat test. So they put just little electrodes on them and make them sweat and measure that, that salt level in his, in his sweat. Because again, this is um, a salt to water imbalance in the cells. So, and just, I mean, kind of back to present day, you know, when he is, um, especially in the summertime and he's sweating a lot, he has to drink a lot more. He has to eat really salty foods because he loses a lot of salt through his sweat so he can get dehydrated really easily. When we got the call from the doctor that he does, in fact, have cystic fibrosis. I remember I was sitting on the couch, and he, I mean, five-week-old five baby is, uh, he's just staring up at me, and it was this really odd, like, I'm crying, and he's looking up at me like, what, what's wrong? Like, you're, this is, yeah, I'm fine. Look at me. I'm good. And it was, it was the most oddly reassuring stare that, you know, I could ever imagine. It was, it was a kind of a, he, he's brought me a lot of peace in that very emotional uh, moment of learning that your life is about to change drastically. And you're listening to Lindsay and Tyler Meisenheimer hearing the news no parent wants to hear. When we come back, you're going to hear how this family handles this news, how they triumph over it and live with it. The Meisenheimer family story. The story continues here on Our American Stories. And we continue here with Our American Stories. We've been listening to the Meisenheimers tell their story. They're a family of five with three boys, and two of their sons have been diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. They were telling us about when they first heard about their son Miller and his diagnosis. We return now to Faith with the story. Men and women often handle tragic news very differently. Here, Tyler shares the thoughts and feelings he had when he found out his brand new son was sick. 
when we found out about Miller, I was at work and, and we lived up in the Memphis area. Uh, my office was about 30 minutes away from home at the time. And I was about to have a big meeting with my team. And uh, I stepped out to take the call where they confirmed he had it. You know, at first I just kind of panicked and I just, I told my boss at the time, I, I have to, I have to leave. I have to go home. I'll explain later. And I just, I just got in the car and drove home and I was, I was angry, honestly. Uh, I had a very uh, interesting conversation with God uh, on that car ride home. I just went in and hugged Lindsay and we cried together. Um, it was painful. Our parents were calling us to let us know, hey, it's all gonna be okay. We're gonna get through this. We're not gonna do without anything and uh, everything's gonna be fine. You know, quickly, I found some comfort from some online support groups for CF and did find some additional comfort two days later when we met with our care team at Le Bonner. Cystic fibrosis is a mouthful. Any sort of disease that affects young children can be scary. But the Meisenheimers have learned that from the outside looking in, their kids can seem totally normal. You know, when, when we were, again, first introduced to our, our new life affected by CF, we, it's a, they called it an invisible disease. So now, of course, there are cases where it has gotten to a more extreme uh, scenario that somebody might be on oxygen, somebody may be wheelchair-bound. However, we, we, we don't foresee that, you know, happening to our boys. And, but basically, you can't see what's going on inside. They look perfectly normal. They're running. They're playing. And it's, for the most part, a, a pro. It's, it's a positive. You know, our kids can blend in. They make friends. They don't have any <clears throat> issues. Nobody looks at them funny, which, I mean, I would never condone regardless of how a child looks. But that's not anything we've ever, ever had to worry about. The only negative, I would say, is Sometimes it's almost forgotten. <laughs> like there have been times, even my, myself included, where, you know, have, we went out to eat and we're about to, everyone's starting to eat and, you know, Miller's like, wait, where are my enzymes? So, I mean, it's something that we, um, we just have to always be aware and even though we can't see it. This disease may not be as obvious, but forgetting about it can put the children in a dangerous situation. Here, Tyler shares a bit about what their daily lives are like with the extra care that is involved. You know, anytime you go from uh, just your spouse and you living together and then you start a family and, and you, you, you bring children in the world, it's, it's life-changing no matter what. And this was, this was even more life-changing because of the extra care. One of the, the first um, bits of advice we, ever, we got from his care team in Le Bonner is you can't put them in a plastic bu bubble. He has to live his life. You have to do all the things and try all the things just as you normally do. So we do every we do extracurricular activities, we do sports, we do a lot of things. But it it's just a it, it's a strong commitment from both Lindsay and I to make sure that everything gets done that's supposed to get done. He does treatments, and this is when he's feeling well. He does treatments twice a day, uh, in thirty minutes in the morning, and you know thirty or forty minutes in the evening time. Um, that's every single day. There's never a day off. We still make ourselves available and really just kind of live for our, our kids and for their childhoods to make sure they're as happy and healthy as we possibly can. And and we just 
we make commitments to make sure that they're living their life to the fullest and that CF doesn't take over their life, that they still get to do the things that every child should be able to do. I've played football, I've soccer, swimming, and I love traveling because I always want to get to all the fifth states. I've been to Tennessee, Kentucky, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, South Carolina. And of course, I've been in Mississippi because that's where I live. As Miller told us, he is able to travel and participate in various activities. Despite all that Miller and his younger brother are able to do, they still have a life-threatening disease that has taken many before them. The extra care can be overwhelming, but Lindsay helps put this care into perspective. Uh, I can't even think of the num- how many times I have been asked by other mothers, you know, I don't know how you do it, how do you manage it? And I mean, but my answer to all of them is you would too. I mean, that's, it's just, you do everything you can for your kids. And I mean, it's regardless of what that care entails, whether you have a perfectly healthy child that's getting picked on at school, well, you're going to, you're going to make sure that you protect your child. Or if there is, you know, like in our situation, underlying health issues and I mean, there have been times where we've had to kind of make sure that they're involved. Like, even if, because they, for instance, I mean, I remember um, on uh, school trips, I would always try to come along and make sure that everything's being taken care of. And now that, you know, they go to a public school, that it's not an issue because there's typically a nurse that comes. But but I just make sure, I've always gone and made sure that they... You know, there's nothing that they're missing out on. You just, you do everything you can for your kid. The hardest thing is, you know, just, it seems so easy for, for other families. I mean, you know, they can pick up and go on a trip and, you know, then if they, they can send their kids to grandparents and like in a t-shirt and like one change of underwear and like they're good. And, you know, for us, it's that's just not the case. We have to pack medical equipment. We have medicines that need to be refrigerated that, you know, we have to send ice packs and send, or send them in ice. That, to me, is the hardest part is just that we, we can't fly by the seat of our pants. I mean, and even when we'll go on family trips, and again, everyone's very supportive, but... It's like if I have, uh, if there's somebody in the family that's not making plans, it's like, okay, I'm sorry, we cannot, <laughs> we can't just do whatever we want. We absolutely have to have a plan from the time we leave the house till the time we get home. That's something that's very hard to understand for anyone that doesn't deal with this. And I completely get that. I mean, I, I no, we wouldn't be like this either. I think that's the hardest part. You know, the, the boys have to get up so early to get therapy done and get to school on time, which I also cannot complain about because Tyler gets up 30 minutes before me and starts him on everything. <laughs> so I really, I, I, I can't complain about a thing, but definitely, I mean, just the ease, it would be what, you know, the only thing that, that we really find ourselves envying. It's easy to compare your life to other people even though you don't know what always happens behind closed doors in other households, it appears that people live very comfortably. We don't always have the same opportunities that 
even some of our peers and some of our fam, our friends have, and even some of our family has. But we do things kind of differently, and we do things together as a family, and we love each other, we support each other. I think Lindsay's the hardest working woman I've ever been around. Uh, how she balances, you know, caring for the kids and her job, and you know, working fifty plus hours a week. <laughs> you know, I, I'm kind of a selfish person. Uh, we all are, right? But being around the kids kind of pushes you to be a little more selfless. And it, it, it's almost kind of a requirement if you want to be good at this job. And then you have to remind yourself that I'm not the one going through it. They are. The kids are. So that gives you kind of a, a sense of strength and, and patience there to know that it's your kid that's dealing with this physically. It's not you. So if you're going to if you're going to feel sorry for yourself for having to care for them, then, you know, maybe as, as a man, maybe you need to man up and, and, and get over it a little bit. And you've been listening to Tyler and Lindsay Meisenheimer. And so often we've been asked by our listeners to talk more about our town. We've been talking about all the other towns in this country. And so that's why we're bringing you these stories. And they're all kinds. And uh, we want to hear from you the kinds of stories that you're going through when we return more of the story of the Meisenheimer family when we come back. This is Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and we last left off hearing the Meisenheimer family share their journey with cystic fibrosis. Two of their three children have it from a gene mutation passed down from their parents. We return to Faith with the story. One of the common trends in marriages with children with special medical needs is separation and divorce. Children with medical issues can bring a whole new type of stress into the marriage. It's important to work It's important to work together and maybe even let one another break down every now and again. There are, you know, breaking points and we just kind of have to have a little pity party and then we come back because that's all that, I mean, there's no other option. Um, Tyler's very supportive of like, okay, go go have a girls weekend. Like you deserve it. I'll I'll pick it up. I'll pick up the work and because it's it's work. It's a lot for one person. So, but I'm, I'm very thankful for him and it is, it does add a whole layer of, of challenge to a marriage, which marriage is already hard. I mean, it's already compromised. It's already hard. It's a work. I mean, constantly we thankfully had a very solid foundation. I feel like before we've absolutely had challenges and fights. I don't know. I mean, it really has never been over the care I feel like we've just done what we needed to do and nobody really, you know, second guesses the other. You know, sadly, I've been there. Like Tyler said, there are a lot of groups out there for parents of children with cystic fibrosis. 
I've seen a lot of, you know, my husband won't do anything um, he, or he won't pick up the weight. He won't help take care of the child. And um, I, I typically don't see it the, the other way as much. There are a lot of people that say we're, we're separating. We can't, we can't make it work. It's heartbreaking. And especially just knowing how much care it takes. I just don't know how, you know, single parents can do it. I think Tyler and I value each other even more, just knowing what what our daily schedule looks like. And we don't take each other for granted. Yes, I, I think the divorce rate, I think we looked this up one time or it, it came across a computer screen. I, it, it may have been like around 90% when the parents have a child with any kind of medical condition. 90%. Um Lindsay and I just have, you know, we, we talk, we communicate. We're not perfect, of course, um, but we know that we're both all in 100% and, um, you know, that we're both committed to the family, to taking care of the kids and doing everything we can. And deep down, we both know that we're in it for our family. We're committed to these kids. We're not going to be a statistic. We're not going to be a family that's broken up about this. We're I'm not going to come home one day and say, you know what? I really don't want to deal with you guys anymore. I'm, I'm leaving town. See you later. Have a nice life. That's not how either of us were raised. And I think a large part of that also is, is faith. Our faith has been tested in a lot of ways over the years. You know, we still have bad days, plenty of them, plenty of them. <laughs> but um, that certainly helps. Along with their daily care, the Meisenheimers go to LeBonner Children's Hospital in Memphis for quarterly visits to make sure everything is going well. One of the biggest risks with cystic fibrosis is getting sick. Every time that they are sick, we're on high alert because a, a common cold for them could be could end up a hospital stay because, I mean, if it gets in their lungs, then that's detrimental. It can be bad. It can lead to IV medications, hospital stays. With the stomach bug, we actually, last year, Miller got the stomach bug. Our sweet Aaron, our middle one, always seems to be the one to bring it home. Um, <laughs> but I think he's, uh, he's, he's our hugger and our loving child, so I think he always, that's probably why he, he brings it home. But he, so he unfortunately gave that to Miller last year, and that led to a stomach paralysis after the stomach bug was out. About a week after he, that he was over the stomach bug, he all of a sudden was not able to eat normally, not able to digest his food. He couldn't keep anything down. It was about a hundred times worse than the actual stomach bug itself. Thankfully, we were able to use some medications and kind of reboot and restart. I've known uh, of another mom that had a child with the stomach paralysis, and I mean, it ended up having to have, they had to have surgery, and so it, it can be an issue. So with their digestive tract, it, it is a little more um, prone to things that can, can go wrong. So we always add, you know, probiotics, multivitamins. I mean, I do all sorts of <laughs> ginger and, you know, B12 and just anything that I can to help out because I know that, that their bodies go through so much more than, than ours do. With sickness being so common for children, it would be easy as parents to live in fear of any possible illness. You know, of course, when, when he was first diagnosed, I mean, it's just your world comes crashing down. You don't know what's about to hit. I mean, it's 
it's you just again you look at this five-week-old baby and you just think how is this possible like you children shouldn't be sick that's just not right but you know we it is uh it's a it is a scary world out there <laughs> it is no matter if you have a a you know medical condition or not we have uh, of course we are uh, we, we try to be careful you know, we bring hand sanitizer everywhere, and I mean, we we try to do things to keep them healthy, but um, we also want to let them live. Um, it is something you everything is a conflict in your head with: Do I let them? Do I hold them back because I'm scared, or do I let them go because I want them to live? You know, I, it wouldn't be right as as much as I would love to put them in a bubble and just keep them safe. And it wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be fair to them. You know, they, they're strong and uh, very active, adventurous boys. And we, we need to let them. Um, it, even going back to, you know, if they went to, you know, stay at at grandparents stay at do a camp or do anything where somebody else has to take care of them at all i mean like school i mean anything um you know you always they're never going to do it like mom and daddy but (laughs) you have to you have to let other people take care of them too and that's that's probably been the hardest just because they deal with something like cf doesn't mean they're not going to still deal with all the normal things that other kids deal with too you know it's it's hard it's not like you you get a break on something else because you deal with this major issue over here um but as far as living in fear i know that if i panic if i live in fear they're going to notice it you know your kids are they're you know for the most part 50 percent you 50 percent your wife and this young child uh, and that you are responsible for preparing that child for adulthood. And so you just, you, you know, living in fear, it's one of those things that we don't really control what happens. We're not in control of our lives. We can do everything. We can take a lot of precautious things uh, like hand sanitizer or doing everything we can to care for them. But uh, we're not promised tomorrow and we just have to do everything we can now and not live in fear because they're going to notice if we are. And, and I don't want them to live in fear as well. And when we come back, the final installment of the Meisenheimer family story, the story of Miller and Bennett's cystic fibrosis, Aaron, the middle child having to deal with that too. Was, my goodness, there are implications for him. And we want to hear your stories too. Share them with us. Stories like this, all around this great country. And clearly this couple was brought closer together, uh, the husband picking up the slack. That divorce rate is staggering. It's also understandable. Uh, This can just break apart an already fragile relationship. These two, the mutual respect, the understanding, and letting each other blow off some steam now and then, and just, well, the other party just shutting up. That's the hardest thing to do in a marriage, with or without these problems, is letting somebody blow off some steam without comment. And I work on that and struggle with that myself in my own marriage. When we come back, more with Tyler and Lindsay Meisenheimer, the Meisenheimer family, here on Our American Story.
And we continue with Our American Stories in the final installment of the Meisenheimer's story. They've been sharing with us what it's like having two children with cystic fibrosis, a life-threatening lung disease. Let's return to Faith. When you first hear that your child has been diagnosed, it can feel like your world is falling apart. The Meisenheimers have been through that twice now, first with Miller, then with Bennett, which turned out to be two very different experiences. I mean, it, it, it is going to be okay. It, it, is going, it is going to be extra work. You are going to worry more so, but they're going to have a full life. There's so much right now on the horizon, the stuff that has already come out and stuff even that is, is right around the corner. Um, we have um, drugs right now that uh, Miller and Bennett are on that are, at the first, for the first time, they are reaching the root of the problem. They are treating the underlying cause of cystic fibrosis instead of just alleviating the symptoms of it. Um, so it's, it's very exciting and, you know, we just, we just know that it is keeping their lungs healthier and it is, it's prolonging their life and making it, I mean, not, not just prolonging, but making the day to day better and that they feel better. So Miller was, he was born in uh, 2011 and Four short years later, when Bennett was, uh, he was born in 2015, it was, I was amazed at the difference when we went and met with the panel of specialists uh, with Bennett, because they said, you know, come back in. We just want to go over everything. I know you did it with, with Miller, but we just want to make sure you don't have any further questions, especially about now having two with the disease. Um, so we, when we went in, I just, I remember with Miller and it was like, you know, there's a lot of great things coming up and we're, we're excited and, and he's, he's going to do just fine. And with Bennett, it was like plan for his future because he is going to have one. I mean, it was, it was amazing to me, the difference and the hope and, you know, just everything that with, with, they were saying, they're like, your boys are going to be fine on average. Uh, CF patients are living longer, and they will continue to do so. The trends are very positive. Um, there are some really exciting medications that are showing some really promising results. CF gets no funding from the government at all. It's it's all of you know pharmaceutical uh, agreements and also goodwill, uh, you know, volunteer philanthropy events as well. So, um, but having said all that, um, it's it's amazing what what results these drugs are. They are uh, going to the underlying cause of CF. And, and I think there will be a day in the not too distant future where this disease will be manageable uh, tr- tremendously, where, you know, you may not even have to do your treatments. This, and this is all coming from the CF Foundation that Lindsay and I follow very closely and some of what their, you know, doctor experts are saying as well, scientists as well. Um, so we're just very excited. Uh, you know, they're going to have careers. They're going to have families. They're going to be able to give back to society just like everybody else is. And, um, I, I, you know, there's a lot of hope, and it's going to continue to grow. This hope can take away a lot of the burden of the disease. But as Tyler said, his kids are the one living with the illness. Miller's experience is different than that of his parents. Miller has all sorts of interests. 
One of those includes writing about his life, even sharing what it's like having cystic fibrosis as a nine-year-old. I, I actually am putting that in a journal, which I'm making out a book, and I'm going to make it famous. <laughs> oh, I'll just... I'm going to put all... I'm going to put all this. All this stuff. Okay, really? I don't think there was enough chapters for my whole life of what's going on. Because there's always a new thing every day. Sometimes I can't fit every moment in my book. I write about my birth and, and you know, Halloween and Christmas. And I would definitely put in, like, CF stuff. Despite his cystic fibrosis, Miller is obviously a very funny and fun-loving child. He loves being a part of the different money-raising events for his disease that his parents help put together, like Bowling for Breath. We have a fundraiser here at the local bowling alley every fall, and usually in September, and uh, it's fun. We we basically rent out all the lanes, and we have teams of you know five or six people, and there's usually a theme, and people dress up. And last year, Miller spoke at that. We gave him the microphone. He gave a short little speech and got to watch and see all these adults dress up and as different things. And um, so it's fun. And then a lot of our friends and family do it in the community. And so we, you know, again, we really appreciate the support. The Meisenheimers work hard to raise money and promote awareness of cystic fibrosis. They even had the opportunity to speak to some pharmacy students at Ole Miss about the work they are doing to help cystic fibrosis patients. Miller showed the students all the different things he does to stay healthy with cystic fibrosis and how their work as pharmacy students is helping young kids just like him. Yeah, I showed them me taking my pills, me taking my treatment. <clears throat> and I do like two three-pound weights and two three-pound weights in one hand almost every day. And I do butterflies and I do push-ups and, and, okay, the curls and overhead are what I do with two weights in one hand because our next-door neighbor is also working out and he has five-pound weights, so Dad wants it to be six-pound weights. Why don't you get some more weights, Dad? As recommended by his care team, he does some exercises. <laughs> He could say things with a straight face and be the funniest guy in the room, and he doesn't even mean to be. So, we had a contact, a, a few contacts. Um, there was a th- second-year pharmacy student that uh, last year did a team for Bowling for Breath, um, and so we got to know them. Great kids, um, and there there was a, another a professor that has some uh, CF tie and um, Tyler was in communication with him. And he just said, Hey, if you want to come talk to our second year students, um, you know, that would be kind of putting a face to what they're doing that, you know, this is who they're going to be serving this type of, this type of person. Um, so he got up and in front of over a hundred second year pharmacy students and he did a song and dance and uh, was pretty upset whenever we would take the microphone away from him. In fact, (laughs) it was for an entire hour and 20 minute long lecture. Mm -hmm. And we were up on a stage with over a hundred pharmacy students sitting there watching us. And Lindsay and I were, 
you know, pretty anxious, pretty nervous, honestly. And he got right up there and was as comfortable and made him laugh and want to talk about Halloween because it was in October and uh, showed him how he does exercises and all that and was dancing. It was, uh, but they, you know, it, it was, it was, they all laughed. I mean, they all came up afterwards and said that was, you know, one of the, the best things that we've experienced being in pharmacy school. And um, so, you know, I think it was nice to see kind of a living example of what they study. So we um, that, yeah, there were a few students actually that came up after and, you know, just thanked us for being there. One was in tears. I mean, she just said, this is an amazing story and it, you know, makes me really love what I'm going to do. Um, So, I mean, it was, it was it was very eye opening for them. Um, now we and because of that, also one of the students um, had he he's putting on a golf fundraiser and he was looking for um, a, a um, charity to to do to use. And they, so he is now doing, because Miller came and spoke that day, um, he's doing the fundraiser. He wanted that to go toward the CF. It, it has changed so much. It used to be, if somebody was my age and was born and diagnosed with this, it was going to, it was very bad news. Um, they probably would have said, you're not going to make it to college. If you do, you're lucky. Um, it's not that anymore. So it's, it's very positive. And of course it can be scary. And of course, you know, in today's world of social media, we see the good, the bad, the ugly, we hear about the, the, the bad stories of, you know, people's lives ending, you know, prematurely. And it's, it's really tough, but I just know, and, you know, we have to use our faith really to kind of, to guide us through this is that, Good or bad, that's not our son, and we have to do everything we possibly can, and it is in God's hands. And, um, you know, we were put here for a purpose, to take care of our children. We'll do everything we can to do that. I'm Faith, and this is Our American Stories. And beautiful job on that, Faith. And thanks to Tyler and Lindsay for sharing, and thanks to Miller for sharing, too. Um, Something tells me he can have his own podcast soon. And for all the families going through these kinds of things, this is how America handles things. These are ordinary Americans doing extraordinary things day to day in all of our neighborhoods. And nice to hear about these pharmacy students, because my goodness, the work that pharmaceutical companies do in this country to enrich and better our lives is remarkable. And that a death sentence is not handed down uh, to young people because of new things and new technology and new innovations in the pharmaceutical world. My goodness, so many families depend on the drugs and the medicine that allow, well, life to be extended and health to be extended. If you have stories like theirs in your town, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. The Meisenheimer family story, Tyler and Lindsay and Miller, Aaron and Bennett, all five here on Our American Stories. 